Uh, Lord, the occupation of heaven, as that opening song reminds us, is to see you high and lifted up. It's to cry out with the seraphim, the cherubim, and the saints of the ages, holy, holy, holy. Lord, from our time this morning, would you um, cultivate in our hearts a bit more that desire uh, to leave this earth behind and to join you and to see you as you are and to be perfected in your presence forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, to the message. You ever done those uh, charts or whatever? Uh, One of these does not look like the other. Some of you got it, some of you didn't. One of these is not like the others. Yeah, yeah, sort of the right color, almost the right size, but otherwise not quite what we're looking for. Uh, this is this is this morning's message is like that. One of these is not like the others. We're in the heroes and villains series. This is the tenth, and if you remember, the the series uh, going on since the summer has really been about uh, Jesus as the superhero, Satan as the arch villain, and sort of taking our cues from Hebrews chapter eleven, where God pointed out people, his people through the ages who had lived faithfully. And basically we said what that looked like was looking like Christ, which simply meant being faithful in the time and the place God had put us. That's faithfulness. And so heroes of faith, Hebrews 11, they're just folks that were faithful. And we said that the villains that we've looked at and will look at, they were not faithful. You remember Satan, the arch villain, he's got this incredible glory, this incredible prestige, and he says it's not enough Basically, I want to displace God Himself. And so, to be a villain is to say to God, uh, my way, not your way. It's things as I want, not things as you want. Uh, On the upside, some of the heroes of faith we've already looked at, Abel was a worshiper. The thing that distinguished his worship from his brothers was faith. He worshiped in faith. Noah built a boat. He and his family were saved and took about 120 years. That was a work of faith. We looked at both Abraham and Sarah Faith in conceiving a son, then later, of course, faith in offering Isaac that son as well. And today, the character we're looking at just does not look like these heroes of faith. In fact, he so much does not look like the heroes of faith that you could certainly make a strong argument, Mike, he doesn't belong in the series. And at one level, I wouldn't quibble with that. We're going to look at Lot this morning, uh, Abraham's nephew, and I have a lot of sympathy for Lot. Um, Um, He is a cautionary tale. As you'll see from the text that we're in this morning and also in the New Testament, Lot is a saved man who loses everything. Lot is a saved man. I see some funny faces. God says Lot is a saved man, but he loses everything. And he's a cautionary tale because you and I can be saved and go into heaven, and yet we can make decisions in this time, place, in this life, that will be immensely costly. In fact, we can, by one step after another, slowly, we can end up doing things, going places that we never thought we were capable of if we're not careful. And we don't get there in one fell swoop. It happens one step after another. And that's what you'll see is the case in Lot's life. So, for believers... Lot is a cautionary tale about not sliding into the world. Not sliding, as you'll see in his life, of course, into the city of Sodom. So he's a cautionary tale. 
So if you have your Bibles, you can be free to turn to Genesis 13. We'll spend most of the time in Genesis 19. We've got a story about Lot because Lot's connected to Abraham. If, there's, if Lot's not in that relationship with Abraham, we don't know him. So his story is tied up in Abraham's, and that's how we're introduced to him. He's Abraham's nephew. Abraham's brother Haran apparently dies early, and so Lot connects with Uncle Abraham, and then he is with, he's part of Abraham's extended family. So he lives Haran, he goes down south into the land of promise, he goes down into Egypt, he builds altars with Abraham in the land of promise. All the things Abraham did initially, Lot's there with him. We get to chapter 13 and basically everything changes. This is Genesis 13 starting at verse 5. It says this, Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Remember, this is kind of an idyllic scene, but it's an arid country and grass is kind of sparse. And so if you've got a lot of sheep and goats, it takes a lot of acreage to get them fed. They've got so many between the two of them, it's like we can't stay in the same place. Verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. The whole lands before you separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. Now, this is a, this is a sparkling example of Abraham's graciousness. Remember, he's in the land of promise. The land is promised to he, to him and his heritage, not to law. And yet he graciously says, hey, take wherever you want. Wherever you go, I'll go the opposite direction. You, you have your choice. Very gracious. And by the way, you can afford to be gracious if God's the one blessing, right? As believers today, we can afford to be gracious to others, just like Abraham was here. Now, this is where Lot's troubles begin. By the way, I've taught on this in the past when we were going through the book of Genesis. I'd encourage you to look that up. There's more information on Lot. This is the parting of the ways, and this is the beginning. This is the first step of Lot's downward trajectory. This is step one. So verse 10 says, Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. And listen to the language here in verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. This language is meaningful. It's not just direction. Lot settled among, he's in the midst of, the cities of the valley, down in the Jordan Valley, and, and then he moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then the text doesn't have to say this as far as the story goes, right? But God says, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So back at verse 11, Lot chose for himself. Uncle Abraham is the one with the promise. And Lot, <laughs> Lot looks at the valley and he says, that's the best place. That's where I'm going. Right? Because it's lush, it's green, there'd always be grass along the riverside. So Lot chooses for himself. It's not an issue of prayer. He doesn't defer to Uncle Abraham. He looks out and he says, I'm going to take what looks the very best to me. I'm taking the river valley. And notice also it says he journeyed east. And we've talked about this before. But once there's a land of promise, if you see God's people moving to the east, it's a sign of judgment. It means they're leaving the place of promise, the place of blessing. And so think of this for just a second. 
they're in the hill country. They're looking down on the Jordan Valley. So picture this in your mind. The direction of Lot is downward. And it says he goes from the west to the east. He's going from the place of blessing. He's going into a place of judgment. So Lot's direction is down and away from the land of promise. And when Jews read this, this would have been more readily visible to them. This is the beginning of his slide. It would have been better for Lot to given his herds to a steward and said, you go with my stuff. You go someplace else. I'm sticking with Uncle Abraham and Aunt Sarah. I'm sticking in their tents. I'm staying with them. Because Lot was blessed because he was with Abraham. Abraham has the blessing. Lot doesn't. And so the wealth that Lot's accumulated is because his proximity to Uncle Abraham. And he doesn't understand that. And this is the first step of several by which he's going to end up, as you'll see, he's going to lose everything. Saved, but foolish, and he left the place of blessing. He, he went away from the place that God was blessing him because he didn't realize the blessing is with Uncle Abraham. It's not mine. There's a passage in John 15, Jesus' upper room discourse, and he's talking to believers like you and I today, his disciples then. But he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And as long as you abide in me, you'll produce fruit. But when you don't abide in me, you don't bear fruit. And Christians today, this is the thing, a lot of what's going on in the church today, evangelical circles today, we are losing our way. And we're, we're straying from God's Word, God's Spirit, God's church, and we're making things up as we go. And people don't realize it's one step after another, just like Lot. And we're losing our way and we're losing our fruitfulness and we're losing our peace and we're losing our joy. And you look at the studies and the surveys and those who profess Christ as evangelicals look an awful lot like the world, just like Lot did. So when we talk about Lot's blessing was because he was with Abraham. When he leaves Abraham, he leaves the place of blessing. For Christians today, when we take those small steps away from intimate relationship with Christ, we're not talking about religion, right? We're not talking about going to church and keeping rules. We're talking about being bound up, our life being bound up with Christ. And that generally looks like we read our Bibles. We read our Bibles not because we're religious do-gooders, but because we walk with Christ, we meet Christ, Christ meets with us in His Word. His Holy Spirit opens up His Word to us and we meet with Him. And we pray. That's fellowship with Christ. We're staying connected with Him vitally. And by the way, we meet with the fellowship of the church. Because when two or three gather in Christ's name, He's there in a way He's not present with us singularly. So our lives are meant to be bound up with Christ. And when that's the case, we're fruitful. Because we're connected to the source of blessing. But every little step you and I take away from intimate fellowship with Christ is doing the same thing Lot did. And what you'll find at the end of the day is we lose, we don't gain. You can't get more blessing away from Christ. It doesn't exist. He's the source of all life. So what you see is Lot makes a decision. It takes him down and away from the source of his blessing. And you and I can do the same thing today as well. We had missionary friends, by the way, years ago. They'd been in a third world country for a number of years. They'd come back. And they were hooking up, meeting with the Christians that they'd known. We went to the same church at the time. And they said, um, you know, it's obvious to us who's been growing and who hasn't. Because they'd been away for years. So, you know, if you see somebody's child today, 
and you see him tomorrow, you don't see the growth or you don't see the change. But if you saw a child today and a year from now, you'd see it, right? And well, the same thing is true spiritually. They just said it's obvious to us who has not been growing. They're the same as when we left them before. And, and that indicates we thrive and we grow if we're connected to the vine. If we're connected to the source of blessing, we thrive and grow. And they said it's obvious to us who it has and who hasn't. Well, Lot, Lot's losing his way. He didn't know how momentous that first decision was to leave Abraham. In chapter 13, he says to Uncle Abraham, okay, I'll just go down here. I'll go down into the valley. And he's going to be a herdsman, right? They're leaving. He's leaving because he's got too many sheep and goats. So I'm going to go down here and I'll be a herdsman down here in the river valley. That's chapter 13. But at Genesis 14, you find out he's no longer living as a herdsman in the valley. He's now living in the city of Sodom. Chapter 14, if you remember, the five cities of the plain, we say Sodom and Gomorrah, there's five cities of the plain that are under God's judgment. Sodom, we say briefly, or Sodom and Gomorrah, but there's five of them. And you remember those cities have been paying tribute to four kings in the east, and they quit. And so those four kings came in, and they whooped up on those five cities, they defeated them, and then they took away the people and the stuff. And so Abraham hears, by the way, they took your nephew and his family and their stuff. And so Abraham gathers his household and he gets some friends and they get their friends and they go up and they defeat those folks. But it says in Genesis 14, 12 to Abraham, they took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. Lot said, I'm a herdsman, I'm going to go down where the grass is green. So one step leads to another. He's no longer a herdsman in the valley. He's now living in the city of Sodom. That's the next step. He's living in the city of Sodom. Now at this point, my question is, why didn't Lot go back to Abraham? He's not a shepherd living in tents anymore. Maybe he's still got the flocks and somebody else is taking care of them. The text doesn't say but the, the reason he needed to leave Abraham and the source of his blessing is no longer an issue. He could have at this point gone back to Uncle Abraham, but he doesn't. And I think it's because his heart is already wrapped up in the new life and the lifestyle in Sodom. Now, God's already told us what the place is like. It's not a good thing that Lot went from living in the valley to living in the city. We're, we're, we're supposed to see, we're supposed to understand a progression here and I think it's a little bit like this um, Proverbs 4 says watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the issues of life that we're to guard our hearts and really that's our affections it's what we count as valuable it's what we esteem and it's easy for you and I to get our affection set on something less than God and God's best and I think that's exactly and I, I know if not Lot specifically, it's certainly true of Lot's family. That they got to Sodom and they saw some things they liked. And their affections became attached to the stuff in the city. Now we know because God's told us this is apparently the most wicked city on earth. But they see things in it that they like. And so their hearts are getting tied up. Their affections are getting tied up with the things in the city of Sodom. Now we would say in today's language, the world. So 1 John 2.15 says to Christians today, love not the world. And, and the world is that system headed up by 
Satan, Christ's arch-villain, if you will, headed up by him. It's informed by Satan and his followers. And it's, it's Satan and it's men and it's all, sort of all of our energy and our affections and our attention against God and His things. Just like Sodom was. And God says to us today, don't love the world and don't love what's in the world. And we've got to be careful. I, one of my concerns for the church today, for Christians today is, I think many of us believe we're smarter than we are. That we can indulge in stuff in the world and be untainted. That we're so shrewd we can go in and we can pick this up and we can pick that up. And we're in the world, right? We live in the world. There's no getting away from this. But we're not to be of the world. There's that whole issue of what are my affections set on? And have my affections become diverted like Lot and his family were? so that my affections are set on things and places and activities that are opposed to God. That's exactly what's happening to him. Christians today, we've got to be careful. We can use the world. We're in the world. We can use the stuff of the world. But where are the affections of our heart? What's got our heart? What's informing us? What are we living for? Who are we living for? Uh, Robert Bork, uh, some of you would be too young to remember him, but he was a federal judge and he was put up to be a Supreme Court judge and he was shot down in the Senate hearings. He's a very he's profoundly um, not just a brilliant guy, but he was a very he was a clear thinker. And one of the books he wrote at the time in 1996 was Slouching Toward Gomorrah. It was 1996, so more than 20 years ago, sliding towards moral, political and social decadence. He called it slouching towards Gomorrah. I would say the church today is sliding towards Sodom. That with Lot, we are sliding towards Sodom. He said, slouching towards Gomorrah. I think arguably a lot of the same things are going on today, not just out there in the world, but in the church. Now back to Lot. Um, there are some ways in which Lot's life bears a resemblance positively to Abraham. And we'll see one of those here in a moment. Unfortunately, Lot looks more like his uncle in the negatives than in the positives. And also, as you'll see, uh, the story of Noah comes in because there's some very clear similarities with Lot's story. And unfortunately, Lot looks like the hero of faith, Noah, but not in the positives, in the negatives as well. So positively here, this is Genesis 19. So those angels that came down with the Lord initially to talk to Abraham in Genesis 18, they've come down to the city, and this is what the text says. The two angels, they look like men. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. Spend the night. Wash your feet. Then you can rise up early and go your way. They said, no, we'll, we'll spend the night in the town square. No problem, we won't put you out. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast, and he baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And when we read this, we've just read Abraham's interaction with the angels, same two guys. We say it's exactly the same. Because in Genesis 18, when Abraham sees them coming, there's three, because the Lord's walking with those two angels at that point, he does the same thing. He gets up, he bows before them, he says, hey guys, why don't you take your time, sit under the tree, we'll get you a meal, we'll take care of you. And remember in the day, this kind of hospitality was a given. Anyone who had any kind of ethical morality would have done this. Exercise hospitality to the stranger, taking care of them. 
And that's what you see Lot doing here. And at this point, you say, great. You know, we know he's in the wrong place. We know he's hanging out with the wrong crowd as a norm, not as ministry, as a norm. At this point, it looks great. Unfortunately, uh, the tide shifts here in short order. So you look at chapter 19, verse 4. <clears throat> so you know the story. The men of the city come at night and they're going to break the house down to physically violate those two men in Lot's house. And so what does Lot do? Now, he's got these two guys in his home and he knows he's responsible for their safety. We get that. That's the norm. We understand that. So he goes out and he shuts the door behind him and he says, hey, this is verse 7, I beg you, brothers, don't act wickedly. Behold. So don't act wickedly. Good. We're, we're good so far. Don't violate these guys. But verse 8, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. D d thank you. Do you feel like somebody punched you in the gut? Slapped you in the face? I'm the father of four daughters. I read this and I cringe. Now understand the scene. There are violent men outside. And they want to do violence to these two men. And Lot says, take my daughters instead. Violate them. But spare these guys. <laughs> you know what? In his mind, this made sense. In his mind, he's thinking, I'm responsible for these men's care. And he was. But in this twisted logic, which has developed since he's been in the city of Sodom, he thinks he can do so at the expense of his daughters, whom he is also responsible for. He wasn't free to offer them. This is an outrage. This is, this is beyond belief for most of us. But guys, <laughs> do you think he got here overnight? Do you, do you think if when he was living with Uncle Abraham and you told him, Lot, you know you're going to be willing to put your daughters out to the greatest harm imaginable, do you think he would have thought that was even a possibility back in the day with Abraham? I don't think so. He didn't lose his sensibilities in a single moment. You know, Proverbs talks about this, and this is where I think we scam ourselves. It's how clear is our judgment really? How affected is our judgment really by, by the affections we might cultivate in the world. Proverbs says in two different places, it's the same set of verses. And the first one says, um, I'm walking down the way and I see a field and it's overgrown with, with thorns and weeds. And I stop and I say to myself, it's like this, it's like a little folding of the hands, it's a little nodding of the head, and that's how my destruction will come upon me. So, so understand, I've got a field, and I don't weed it one day. And I say, no big deal. And I don't weed it another day, no big deal. But day after day, it catches up. And after a while, the field is full of weeds and thorns. I never said on one single day, this is where everything's going. He compares it, it's as if I've been taking one, one um, step after another thoughtlessly, unwisely. And then suddenly a guy jumps out on the road with a gun and says, I'm robbing you. And I'm like, how did I get here? It seems like this just happened in a moment. No, it didn't. I've been walking down this road a long time, one step after another, and all of a sudden the cost hits me. And I'm like, what happened? 
It's one thing after another. It's one decision you make after another. It's one day after another. And guys, there are Christians, and they'll tell you, and you can see this in recovery programs, there are Christians who will tell you, I did things I never thought I was capable of before God brought me to my senses. And I turned around. And you don't get there overnight. It's one step after another. It's the slide into Sodom. It's first I make one decision, then I make another decision, then I make another decision, and I end up, I'm robbed, I'm slain. I'm, I'm in a place I never could have conceived I would have been. And that's exactly what you see with Lot. So when we're thinking of ourselves, don't fool yourself that you're not affected by the world you and I live in. We are. It's a given. And we're in the communication age. We're on smartphone age. You and I are in the window of the world of Sodom almost 24-7. We're affected by news and social media. And by the way, I'm a fan of technology. I'm a fan of communication. I'm not speaking down on any of these platforms or apps or opportunities, but it's how do they affect our heart? What do they do to the affections we're cultivating? Where are they taking us? That's the thing. And so if we think we can inhabit Sodom, the world, and not be affected, we're kidding ourselves. Lot thought he could go down and live in that city and stay okay, and he couldn't. And he didn't. Now, I had some looks when I told you that Lot was a righteous, saved man. But let me read the story because these aren't my words, these are God's. Genesis 19. By the way, this is the other key thing from this story. Salvation. <laughs> There's a verse, I can't remember the reference. Salvation is of the Lord. You know what that means? God saves us. We don't save us. God saves us on the front end. God keeps us on the back end. Salvation is of the Lord. Now we've said... Saving faith works. Faith works. We've said that. That's the norm. That's why we're looking at the heroes of the faith. Hebrews 11 type characters. But works after salvation don't save you. They add nothing to your salvation. Zero. If you're born again, we'll talk about this in a minute. Anyway, I wanted to make sure I said that. So, Genesis 19. We know that Lot is saved from God's judgment on the city. The morning dawns. The angels urge Lot. They say, hey... Get up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, so you won't be swept away in the punishment of the city. Now, it says here at verse 16, but he lingered. <laughs> the city's going to be destroyed. It's right, judgment from the heavens is coming down, and Lot lingers. Now, I suspect if I told you your house was going to burn down in an hour, you'd probably think, what do I need to get out? Right? Family photos, I got stuff in the safe, whatever. I lingered. I stopped. I thought, what can I take with me? Well, at this point, he can't take anything with himself. Whatever he's got, he's got. There's no time to linger. And I love the way this follows up. The men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand. And listen to this phrase, the Lord being merciful to him. You know, sometimes when we're really, really dumb, God is really, really merciful. In fact, more often than not. That's what you see here. And they bring him outside. They set him outside the city and they say, escape for your life. Don't look back. Don't stop in the valley. Get to the hills or you'll be swept away. Verse 29 says this. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. This is from chapter 18. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which 
Lot had lived. Now, if you remember the exchange between God and Abraham, the issue was, Lord, certainly you can't treat the righteous like the wicked. You can't destroy the righteous with the wicked as if there's no difference. So when Lot is saved out of Sodom, God is saving the righteous and He's keeping the wicked under punishment. This text clearly infers that Lot is righteous apart from the ridiculous nature of his judgment and what he said and done. That's, that's challenging, I can see, on your faces. So, let's go to 2 Peter 2. We looked at this passage, I think, a week or so ago because in it, it's a reminder that God says that He is going to judge sin. He'll judge sin. He has to. And then He gives historical reminders of times in the past in which he's brought his judgment down on sin, and yet in doing so, he's never treated the righteous like the wicked. He has saved the righteous. And so Lot becomes an example of this paradigm. And so this is what God says through the Apostle Peter about your friend and mine, Lot. God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw, or excuse me, by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. God calls Lot righteous. Now lest we think he's using a trick of some semantics, <clears throat> the Greek here is dikaios, and it's the same word Paul uses in Romans and Galatians to say you and I are justified before God through faith in Christ. It's the same word that's translated righteous in Corinthians. We have the righteousness of Christ. There's no ambiguity here that Lot is saved. Lot's in heaven and you and I will see him forever. Lot's a saved man. God says he's dikaios, he's just, he's righteous. So, so think of this. He makes one lousy decision after another. He suffers incredible loss. He leaves Abraham the source of his blessing. He moves to the valley of Sodom. He moves into the city of Sodom. He loses his right judgment regarding care for his family. He's going to lose his wife, as we'll see in a moment, his wealth and his right relationship with his daughters, and God still claims him as one of his own. That's shocking, isn't it? And at one level, at one level I'm glad it is, and at another level it shouldn't be. Remember what Paul says in Romans 7, the things I do I wish I didn't, the things I'm not doing I should do. Uh, even Christians today who have the Spirit in a way that Lot didn't, even Christians today sin in ways they thought they were incapable of at one point before they started a, a downward slide as Lot did. Psalm 73, which has been one of my favorites over the years, uh, says this, uh, the psalmist says to God, you have hold of my right hand. You have hold of my right hand. What does that mean? If you're parents and you have little kids and you cross the street, what do you do? You grab your kid by the hand. Now, is your kid safe crossing the street because he's holding on to your hand or because you're holding on to his? See, he's safe because dad has his hand. And that's Psalm 73. Or if you go to John 10, Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life. And they'll never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. We're Christ's possession. He doesn't lose us. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of the hand of my Father. 
Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything? Nothing can. Guys, at this stage, it's a reminder that salvation is of the Lord. You and I are saved initially by Christ's and grace and faith, and we're kept by God's grace and faith and Christ. This isn't on us, which is great. That's a hallelujah, but there's so much to lose. This is verse 26 of chapter 19. But Lot's life behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So they're heading out of the city. They're going to escape judgment. And what does it say? Lot's wife looked back. The term here that's translated look back, it means to regard with pleasure. When she looks back, it's because her heart is in Sodom. We would say Christian today, I'm in love with the things of the world. The affections of my heart are set on the place and the people God is now judging. And so Lot loses his wife in the judgment of the city because she had become one with Sodom. She had slid full in and Sodom represented to her what was desirable. He lost his wife. She'd become enamored with the city of Sodom. He hadn't done his duty by his wife. You know, this is not, uh, this is not demeaning to say that a husband is meant to look out for his wife's best. And here he puts her in this place where she's tempted apparently beyond her ability to resist. And this is one of the ways in which he looks negatively like Uncle, Uncle Abraham. You remember Abraham two times puts his wife Sarah in harm's way because he was afraid. And here you've got Lot bringing his wife and then leaving his wife in a place in which the affections of her heart were totally taken over by things absolutely at odds with God and God's things and therefore against her own best interest. And yet that's where Lot brought her. He didn't exercise loving kindness towards his wife. Not only that, but his daughters were polluted as well. Oh, we're good on time. Genesis 19, I'll just uh, briefly retell. You remember, so Lot and the girls, they run and they escape. And Lot said, hey, would you spare that one little city, Zoar? I'll get there and life will be fine. Do you remember, Zoar was one of the five cities of the plain. God had intended to destroy it too. It's wicked like Sodom. But Lot thinks that we can do okay there. So the angel says, okay. So they run to the city of Zoar, and they get there though, and the text says Lot was afraid to live there. It's scary. He's just come from the place God's destroying, and Zoar looks a lot like it, and he says, I'm too frightened to live here. I won't live here. So what does he do? So he and his daughters go, and they live in a, a hole in the ground. They live in a cave. Now just think about this for a second. Where did Lot start? He's with Uncle Abraham. He's got the wealth of the world. The world by the tail, as it were. He's got everything. And then he starts going down and away. This is life end. He ends in a hole in the ground with nothing. It's almost an image of death. He's righteous. God says he is. But it's as if he is dead to the possibilities God had for him in the world. He's living in a hole in the ground. Now, his daughters have been corrupted like he was. His thinking, their thinking is crazy. So what do they say? They say, you know what? There's no men left. God destroyed the cities. There's no men left. So what do we do? So we'll get dad drunk, and the older sister's going to sleep with dad one night, and the younger sister's going to sleep with dad the second night, and they both do, and they both conceive. Where's that coming from? Were there no men left in the world? Well, of course there were. Why did they think this? 
This wasn't even logical. Their thinking has been corrupted to degrees they didn't know. They didn't recognize. So the text says, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. You can see their tribal groups there on the map. Moab means from my father. Ben-Ami means son of my people or son of my dad. This is the end of Lot's story. At this point, you say, there's some comparisons negatively with Abraham. Do you remember that God promised Abraham a son and and Abraham thought, I'll help God because the son hasn't come. And so what's he do? He has a son with Hagar named Ishmael. And what happens between the heirs of Ishmael and Isaac? The heirs of Ishmael, they persecute the heirs of Isaac. And what do you think is going to happen with Lot's illegitimate heirs? You know what they're going to do? They're going to persecute the descendants of Isaac also. So Moab is going to come up big time in Exodus when God's people come out as promised from Egypt. They come up and they face their first opposition with the Moabites, with Lot's illegitimate descendants. The same negative inference you see from Abraham's life you see here. But also like Noah, this is the other negative comparison. So Noah is a hero of faith on one hand. And if we say that Lot looks like Noah, that sounds like a positive unless it's at the end of Noah's story. Remember at the end of Noah's story? So Noah and his family, they're saved through a very particular judgment of God. And he and his family, they're the only ones saved. That's Lot, same as Lot. And then Noah gets drunk. Do you remember after the deliverance? And while he's drunk, one of his children treats him shamefully. And out of that interaction, Noah says that the sons of the shameful one, they're going to be at odds with the other children of the other two, uh, the other two sons. And so what happens? Lot gets drunk. He's treated shamefully by his daughters and those illegitimate children are going to now become persecutors in the future of the children of promise. Unfortunately, looking just like Noah in the negative, not in the positive. You know, California suffering wildfires. These are historic. Last I heard, 63 dead, hundreds still missing and thousands of homes. Uh, Lot's a cautionary tale for us. Lot is a cautionary tale for the righteous. Lot's a cautionary tale for the righteous. We said before that God will judge sin. The righteous have passed out of judgment. John 5, 24. We've passed out of judgment. We've passed into life. But Lot's a reminder for us. Listen to this verse from 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15. It's a well-known passage in which Paul tells believers you're going to go through a fire. Not a judgment for your sin, a judgment on your works. And it's as if you'll stand before Christ and he'll, He'll put a torch to the works of your life and it will reveal the quality, the motivation, why we did what we did. And it says some of that's going to be like wood, hay, and stubble. It burns up. And some will be like gold or precious jewels or metals. But listen to the the close of this phrase. Paul says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That sounds like Lot. He's saved, but he's saved through fire. He's in heaven, but he lost so much along the way. 
And one of my chief concerns for us today, for evangelical Christians like us today, is that we're sliding and we don't know it. That with Lot, we're just making one little decision after another. We're influenced by the world in ways we don't recognize. And we'll end up further afield than we thought possible if we're not careful. And Lot is a cautionary tale for people like us. Our blessing is connected to that vital relationship with Christ. You remember in Ephesians 5, Paul's talking about husbands and wives and Christ in the church. Do you remember how Christ uh, cleanses His bride, the church? That's people like you and me. He does it through the washing of water with the Word. Are we reading our Bibles? And, and you know, reading the Bible, that's my shorthand for are we meeting with Christ in the Scriptures? Is the truth of His Word cleansing our mind? Because we get polluted. And our judgment gets skewed. You can't avoid it. Because we do live in the world. We live in Sodom. And so if we're not rightly apprehending that relationship we have with Christ, we slide, we drift, we slouch. And guys, the losses can be just tremendous. You know, who of us here doesn't want to say, I want to see my family with me in heaven? Or I want to see my kids grow up to be blessed in their time on the earth and live with the Lord forever? Who, would, who of us would want to say we want something less than God's very best for those we know and care about and also for those we don't know or don't know yet but care about? None of us. If that's the case, Lot reminds us you can slide in ways you didn't think possible. And so we've got to stay tied in with Christ, with the church. We want to be effective, by the way, in evangelism. We talk about this all the time. We're not saying as a holy huddle we can live outside the world. We live in the world. And we're to be salt and light in the environment, the time and the place God has given us. And we want to interact with others in the world. We want to do so like Jesus did. You remember He said, I'm among sinners as a doctor is, among patients. Some of us are in the world because we like the world. We're not, we're not there to help others. We're there because we like it, like Lot's wife did. We've got to stay connected to Christ. We've got to be careful of what the affections of our heart are being set on. We don't want to fool ourselves that one little step after another won't take us to a hole in the ground where we've lost everything except our salvation. So, that's Lot. Let me pray, and then we'll stand and, and uh, share a Scripture together. God in heaven, would you, uh, would you reprove us, Lord, with your word? Would you show us the places in our hearts, our affections, our lives where we're strained from you, where we've bought into the lies of the world, where we think we can do one thing or another with impunity and not realizing, Lord, every step away from you is a step towards death, not towards life. God, would you help us to value you above everything else? And Lord, would you help us like your servant Abraham, would you make us a blessing to others because we are knit into the vine that is Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, if you would, let's stand together and we'll, we'll read this together if you would. This is from Psalm 116. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. 
For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Amen.